The Fed is staying cautious while banks are getting bullish. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. Right here next to me, David Hansen. David Outcast is reuniting to head up Coachella, to lead Coachella. How excited are you about that? And if you could get any band to reunite or get together for the first time, what would it be? Marginally excited. Because it's not like they are not seen anymore. I mean, you still see Big Boy out there performing all the time. So, marginally excited. Band that I would get back together, 98 Degrees, Nick Lachey. Come on. What else would you go with? What, what are you going with? I'm pairing Black Sabbath and Nas for the first time in concert, and that's Ozzy Black Sabbath, not any of that later years. Can Nick Lachey come on, too, and join in? He o- fits in with those guys. Only if they get to hit him with guitars. Okay, cool. Moving on to the headlines. First headline of the day, David, I know you're going to love this. Fed to proceed cautiously with taper. The minutes from the Federal Reserve's latest meeting were out yesterday. This is an article from the FT covering that. The minutes basically talk about, reveal how cautious the Fed is being, the the line they're trying to tiptoe between uh, tapering back the the accommodation that they've been given. Uh, In this case, that's buying $5 $5 billion, uh, fewer mortgage, mm-hmm. mortgage-backed securities uh, versus not giving the signal that they're pulling out all of the, all of the accommodation. Um, what's your thought on this? I'm not surprised. The headline was they're going to proceed cautiously. What did we expect them to proceed aggressively and recklessly? I mean, we, that's what they're going to say. I don't know. If you listen to a lot of the talk, it seemed like that's what a lot of people were expecting. And we were talking before the show about what could go wrong with the Fed? And there's all these scenarios where inflation runs, runs wild and what do they do with the balance sheet? And that's all fine and extreme scenarios could happen, but I don't think individual investors should worry about it because that's beyond our control. Why don't we contr- focus on looking at companies and finding good stocks rather than trying to think what the Fed can do? So to me, it's out of my control, kind of out of my mind. Because it's fun to think about. What it is a little fun. It's still, I, I think we still need to... Uh, wait a little bit to try to figure out what the impact will be on interest rates because, as we've pointed out on the show before, when the Fed stopped its earlier quantitative easing, easing programs, uh, interest rates actually dropped as opposed to rose. Uh, so far, it looks like they're rising. The, the, the taper was announced on December 18th. The five-year has gone from 1.77%, that's the five-year treasury, 1.77% to 1.52%. That's oh, I'm sorry. Other way around, mm-hmm. from 1.52 percent to 1.77 percent, and the uh, the 10 year ha- uh, went from 2.85 percent to 3.01 percent. So you've got a, a little bit of a, a bump in interest rates there so far. But we've also could, seen the economy move. Exactly, so. exactly. So when we think about what the Fed's doing, this is not happening in a vacuum. So right. the reason that the Fed is pulling back is the economy is improving, and as the economy is improving. We're going to see more constraints on lending, more constraints on, uh, on all kind of uh, resources out there. And that's what also helps push up interest rates. Year over year, uh, I'll point out, we've seen a big bump. Uh, the 10-year the, the has gone from 1.89% to that 3.01%. So wow. a really big jump there. Mm-hmm. Second headline. Second headline. Out of this Fed stuff. Going to the Wall Street Journal. Banks, oh, wait, no, we can't get away from the Fed. Going to the Wall Street (laughs) Journal, banks got more optimistic stress test results than the Fed. 
last March during the stress test season. The banks run their scenario. The Fed runs their scenario. And there was a study that came out and said, wouldn't you know it, but the banks were more optimistic about their books than the Fed. Are you surprised by this? I mean, to me, it was, yeah, why wouldn't they be more optimistic? <laughs> we, we've got this little, mis- this little sound machine here, and I, I, I'm thinking about all the sounds that I wish it had, and one of them that I needed to have is, duh. Yeah. Because that's the sound that I'd be playing here. If you're going to ask the Fed to do a stress test, the regulators to do a stress test, and then ask the bank themselves, these are the results I would expect that you'd get, that the banks would be more optimistic than the regulators. But I think what, what this is to think about going forward is the, the constant push-pull that we're going to see between the banks and the regulators as the regulators continue to want to maybe push in the direction of being overly safe, mm-hmm. where the banks are going to want to maybe walk the line of adequately safe and maybe, in some cases, uh, uh, push it to not so safe. What's interesting, is, is too, is when we look at the individual banks, we can see some pretty big uh, differences between what the Fed said and, and what they said. But the banks also did mid-cycle stress tests. And so we can see some, uh, possibly some changes, some improvements in the banks based on those. Bank of America, for instance, the PPNR, that's pre-provision net revenue, in the March release of their stress tests was $38.5 billion. So that's under the severely adverse scenario. For the mid-cycle stress test, it was up to $45.9 billion. Uh, net loss uh, in, the, in the March cycle stress test, $43.8 billion. And then for this mid-cycle stress test, $26.1 billion. So a big improvement there. So what will be interesting is to watch as these stress tests, the next round of Fed and company stress tests come out in March and see if we really are seeing uh, changes to the balance sheets at these banks that would uh, mean that they're much safer under these adverse scenarios. Even if they are much safer, it's, it's not gonna, the Fed's not going to come out and say, okay, we'll just do whatever you want to do, give all the dividends you want. And still, even if everything looks great and capital ratios are, are really high, they're still going to have to go through the process, and it's going to be a while before bank dividends really ramp up. Well, if you're a regulator, what's your bias towards? To be conservative. Yeah, to be way conservative. So I, I, you're right. That's, that's probably what's going to be the case. All right. Uh, third headline comes from Bloomberg. We've got insurers to favor deals over buybacks. Deloitte says this is a Deloitte outlook for 2014, looking at life insurers and essentially saying that after a heady year for, for a lot of life insurance companies, uh, their, their stocks in particular, in 2013, and a lot of buybacks being done in 2013, that cash is going to be more put to work in other ways than buybacks in 2014, including... Uh, potentially some deal-making. Right. It notes that uh, Principal Financial has already said they plan to do less buybacks, which makes sense. We've seen stocks run up a lot, so the the hurdle is higher for you to, to do a buyback now and for that to be successful. And all the insurance companies, and all the companies, not just insurance, everyone's saying the right thing about buybacks. They're saying, well, we're going to be very prudent about it. When the stock's too expensive, we're not going to do it. And that sounds great, but we know from history that very few companies consistently get buybacks right. You look at Berkshire Hathaway, they're one of the few that are pretty disciplined when they do buybacks. Other companies, very not undisciplined. Is that a word? Non-disciplined? Indisciplined? Very non-disciplined. Just not good at it. So it's... No bueno. It's tough for investors um, to kind of differentiate who's going to do a good buyback and who's going to do a a bad buyback. I think you really have to look to who has the experience of doing it well over time, not just... Anyone could have done a buyback in the beginning of 2013 and it been successful. 
I mean, when we saw stocks run up like that. I would say it's not necessarily a blanket thing as far as buybacks not being as attractive in 2014. There are some companies, CNO Financial, for instance, and Kansas City Life, still trading at below tangible book value. Uh, though, as the article mentions, we have seen a lot of life insurers. Lincoln National, for instance, is now trading at 1.22 times tangible book. MetLife, almost 1.2 times tangible book. I will point out that AIG, though not solely a life insurer, has a large life insurance mm-hmm. operation, still trading at 0.77 times tangible book value. Share As a shareholder myself, I would like to see some buybacks going on there. So when AIG reports earnings in second week of February, I think, if they said, hey, dividend's great, but where are you going to do even more share buybacks? Would that make you happy? Yeah. You'd rather have the buybacks than the dividends right now? Well, at that kind of valuation, sure. All right. I, I, I mean... If, if I get the capital back, I'm going to be putting it to work in opportunities like AIG right now. So might as well just have them save me the trouble and buy back the stock directly. Sounds good. It is good. <laughs> All right, going on to the focus for today. The focus is sleeping well. While owning big financial companies. I thought it was just sleeping well. I have all these medications down here that people can take. Well, actually, I, I mean, given the kinds of articles that are shared well on Facebook, mm-hmm. maybe we should just do sleeping well. What, what, yeah, are, what are your, before we get to the actual topic, what are your top three tips for sleeping well at night? Oh, man. Be really tired. <laughs> That's one. <laughs> okay. Uh, that a, good, a good workout, maybe a, glass, a couple glasses of red wine. You sleep like a baby. A couple glasses of red wine. <laughs> maybe a bottle. <laughs> Get, <don't> night. <laughs> Get your quiet bottle of wine. That's how it works. No, no screen time, no cell phone, no tablet an hour before Are you bed. telling me? I'm just saying. That's My a general parents? tip. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, All right. Yeah, on to the real care, stuff. Uh, okay. On to the real stuff. The, the last few years have painted a particularly terrible picture for financial companies. Uh, we've seen a lot of, l- lot of wrongdoing, uh, a lot of uh, blunders, a lot of just uh, bad, bad, stuff. Yeah, bad stuff, bad actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question is, is that today, and, and this is obviously going to probably be a biased uh, visit to this topic since we cover banks and financial mm-hmm. institutions, and we're both shareholders of big banks, but is it is it possible and why is it possible to own big banks today and still be able to go to sleep at night and feel okay about your investment portfolio? Well, I think the biggest risk to not being able to sleep well at night is the fact that your investment could lose a lot of value overnight. You could wake up the next day and the stock you were holding is now worth 50% less and the road doesn't look pretty to get back to where you were before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for any company. I don't think that's true for just financials. There are there are known unknowns with every company. No one can know every single stock they have inside and out and all, all the troubles there. And two things that come to mind to me are Diamond Foods and Tile Shop Holdings. No one ever would have said, can you sleep well at night holding a tile shop? But when we, look, look what happened a couple months ago when there were reports of some stuff going on there, related party transactions, allegations, I guess you could call it. The stock fell, what, 50% in a couple days. Diamond Foods, same thing, over 50% in 2011 when there was a a walnut farmer scandal. I mean, this stuff can happen at any companies. Um, so I really don't think that it's fair to say that I can't sleep well at night because I, I think the big banks are doing something bad. I think it's possible for this stuff to happen anywhere, and there can be really big value-destroying things at any company. Well, can, can, you, can you sleep well? It, it, part of that, yes. I, I 
totally agree that when when you have to worry about big losses, when you have to worry about the, the stocks that you own dropping drastically out of the blue, that's terrible. But there are also a lot of people, I think, that want to feel like they own something that's doing good for the world. And so the, the, I think the first answer, can you own big banks, uh, big financial companies, and sleep well at night, is if you don't care. I, I, there are people out there, um, I wouldn't necessarily put myself all the way in that camp, but there are people who invest in stocks to make money. Mm-hmm. And so if, they, if it's a stock, if it's a company that they believe is going to make them money, they're okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also think that in the financial industry, in the banking industry in particular, right now you're investing in the right part of the cycle. I, I, I do think the financial, it's not, just, it's not just that it's a cyclical business, uh, cyclical industry, but it's cyclical from the perspective that you get people ascending to places of power within the financial institutions uh, through long uh, good cycles, long pro cycles that, uh, that end up leading to calamity and doing right. a lot of terrible things. And then on the other side of that, you get leadership in place uh, that, is, that is much stricter, much more conservative. So I think Citigroup is a great example of this from Chuck Prince, who and, – and, it's not fair just to bring out the dancing comment every mm-hmm. time you talk about Chuck Prince, but that did encapsulate a lot of what Citigroup was doing and a lot of what got them into trouble in the financial crisis. And now you've got, on the other side, Michael Corbett, who's really a banker, mm-hmm. and, and he wants to turn Citigroup into a much more boring type of bank. Um, and, and then I think that there's also some amount of framing and recency bias that because we've seen all of these scandals at big banks recently, the assumption is is that they can't operate other than that. Um, and when we look at outside uh, other industries um, in terms of is this industry doing good for the world, I think there's, you know, there's legitimate question in other industries, can you sleep well at night owning Yum! Brands? Mm-hmm. Yum! Brands behind Kentucky Fried Chicken, right. Taco Bell, not the healthiest foods, uh, behind Win, uh, sleep well owning Win or MGM. Uh, gambling, uh, gambling institutions. Tobacco companies. Philip Morris and Altry, that was next on my list. Kraft Foods, Coca-Cola, and Sugar Water. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of, a lot of things here that um, it's very much a, a, a recent thing mm-hmm. with financial companies, that they're the ones that are sort of the flavor of the week as far as doing bad things and, and being in front of people from that. Um, maybe I'm just the ultimate financial company Apologi- uh, apologist. That's, that is quite possible. Um, but that's, that's where I stand with it. Do you have any other holes to poke in owning one of these companies? Not really. To me, it's really not about whether what they're doing is ethical or not. I mean, the, the basics of banking is are you okay, Are you okay with owning a company that's not acting in an ethical way, even if it's not illegal? Um, well, it depends on what the ethics are, I guess. I mean, I don't <laughs> mind owning Coca-Cola. I don't own it, but uh-huh. I wouldn't think that's bad. But if it's something that's like selling things that poison to babies, maybe I'd probably be like, yes. <laughs> I prefer you didn't sell if to they're babies. legitimately poisoning babies, that's where David Hansen draws the line. <laughs> exactly. But I- I'm with you. I'm, s- I'm sleeping fine. And if that changes, I'll let people know. All I right. start having nightmares. Well, let's go from there on to the emails. Uh, we have an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. You can email us there. We'd love to get your emails. Um, we got an email today. This comes from Timothy, and Timothy writes, You guys say you like banks with smart management that has a long-term strategy. However, you don't spend much time talking about Wells Fargo. 
Wells is the member is a member of the big four banks that has arguably done the best job in the last five years. What gives? Yeah, they have been the best the last five years. They have, and and, and maybe that's our bad for not talking more about Wells Fargo and just going back to that that thought of can you own a big bank, a big financial institution, and sleep well at night. Wells Fargo, perhaps an example, a good example of why of, of how you'd be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at the the amount of fines that banks have paid in the wake of the financial crisis, Wells Fargo, I believe, is is far and away. Citigroup actually hasn't paid that much either, mm-hmm. but but uh, Wells Fargo way below Bank of America, way below uh, right. J.P. Morgan. <clears throat> um, even though what, what's interesting about that is that although it has that reputation, Wells Fargo does. It's consumer scores, if you look at uh, ratings from places like J.D. Power. Pretty similar. Yeah, pretty similar to all the others. But I think, I think the reason that maybe we don't talk about it as much as the other ones is because at the core of this show is that it's an investing show and an investing podcast. And Wells Fargo, I agree, they're the best-run bank of the big four. I mean, they, I think their model is to be admired. But we're trying to find the best investment opportunities. And we talk about Bank of America and maybe J.P. Morgan a, a little bit more in terms of potentially being better opportunities. And to me, the marginal return that I think you could get with J.P. Morgan is, is better than what the future looks like for Wells Fargo um, because of the lawsuits, the stuff weighing down the, the stock price, in my opinion, the valuation. I think the returns are similar. So that's why I personally maybe don't talk about Wells Fargo as much. So just to, just to challenge, and, and I come from the same place, and, and that holds for, for me, it also holds for Bank of America and Citigroup as well. Um, in fact, Wells Fargo is only one of the four big banks that I don't own personally. Um, if you had to lock up, because I think the opportunity for the other three of the big banks is largely, I think, plays out in the next three to five years. Mm-hmm. So if you had to lock up your money in one of the big four for 20 years, couldn't touch it, which would it be? It probably would be Wells Fargo. Okay. Um, over 20 years, over the next three to five years, I think the opportunity is better elsewhere like you. But 20 years, I feel really good with the management team and the history of kind of being a disciplined bank. So do you think about potentially riding out the opportunity in the other three banks or a selection of the other three banks over the next three to five years and then trying to ride the, the Wells Fargo wagon train off into the sunset? It's possible. If the, if the price is, is right, I just think the... The price isn't exactly right for me today with Wells Fargo. If there is some, I don't know, cri- quote, crisis and everything got a lot cheaper, I think Wells Fargo is definitely one that everyone should have on the radar. But it's, it would take a lot to knock that thing down. As Billy Madison said, the price is wrong. <laughs> I, won't fin- I won't finish that quote. <laughs> All right. Let's go. On that note, let's go to the game for today. The game for today is fool in the blank. Uh, fool in the blank. We have three scenarios here today. For each one, there is a blank, and we fool in that blank. Yes, it's indeed. a cute way of instead of fill in the blank, fool in the blank. Mm-hmm. Get, got, got it? You with me? I know. Okay. I made it up. Let's. You? How did you? Make, oh yeah, actually, you did make it up. All That's right. A good point. <laughs> All right. First scenario, we've got. If I had to buy an insurance company worth less than a billion dollars, it would be blank. I'm going to cheat a little bit because when You're I was always cheating. When I was You're when I was looking cheating. this morning at around 8 a.m. Uh, doing doing some more research, um, this company had a market cap of under a billion. It no longer is under a billion because the stock is up over 16% today, and that is eHealth. I'm cheating also a little bit because this isn't a, your traditional insurance company, but they're more of a, an insurance marketplace. And they released earnings this morning, and they said, hey, we had a huge boon from the 
Affordable Care Act and healthcare.gov. Otherwise known as Obamacare. Otherwise known as Obamacare. Um, Just in case anybody was confused on that. Um, so yeah, a very similar thing to the healthcare.gov. It's a website you can go on, buy health insurance plans, type in your information. Um, and it's actually, they have a partnership with healthcare.gov um, to kind of tell people whether they can get subsidies too. So interesting platform. It, I think insurance is moving to that platform of going online, seeing the options. So eHealth is already out there. No longer under a billion, but that's my pick. I should have cheated on this one. I should have taken a look at the insurance companies less than a billion dollars before I came up with this scenario because this was this was harder than I thought. My my possibility would be Steward Information Services. This is a uh, company that I've looked at on again, off again over the years. Uh, what they do is they title insurance is their core business, which means that they um, insure home titles uh, to make sure that the the chain of title ownership uh, is is continuous and, and proper. Mm-hmm. Um, and they pay out when when it's not. Right. Um, so they had a horrible time during the financial crisis when all of the foreclosures started happening, when uh, basically the other side of all of the froth on that side of the market, there was all kind of shenanigans that was going on, and Stewart ended up paying out uh, some significant uh, insurance payouts because of that. The only problem is, is that it's great for Stewart that the, that the housing market is recovering the way it is, but the valuation isn't necessarily attractive. I think the, the stock may have overrun what Stuart will be able to do. On the bright side, I think there's a decent growth opportunity to, uh, for it to catch up to some of its competitors. Cool. Number Second. two scenario. I got it. Blank would convince me big banks haven't changed their behavior. Are you convinced? And if so, what would convince you they haven't? This is a tough one. Um, I I had an answer, and now I'm going to. So you you have an answer prepared? Yes. I'll let you. I'll let you go first on this one because right. I, I had one, and now I've let it go. It, it was a tough one for me to answer, but I think another London Whale type incident would convince me that big banks aren't changing their behavior. Okay. Um, I'll give I'll give J P Morgan and the big banks one strike. I, I can understand what happened. There was obviously some oversight at J P Morgan. What happened? Maybe some incentives weren't correctly aligned. But if that happened again at J.P. Morgan especially or any of the big banks, to me that's a red flag to let that they would still have something that could expose shareholders to the tune of $6 billion or something like that. So another London Whale incident would probably convince me otherwise. I would have to say I, – I would say I don't think that we're going to get a chance to see this. Uh, unless we have another downturn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be at the other end of, the, uh, of another downturn, whether we see another round of this, of this settlement activity and uh, uncovering of wrongdoing. That would convince me. My assumption, though, is that I may not be in as nearly as many banking companies as I am right now by the time that happens, just because on the upcycle, the companies will be less attractive. All right. Um, I, there, there, are certain, there are certain banks, there are certain financial companies that I want to own for the long term, and those are the ones where I would feel like I have little concern that, uh, that, that they, they would be caught out even under another down, economic, economic downturn. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go on to the third one. The third one is actually the easiest. We need an easy one now. In 2014, the U.S. economy will be blank. It will be surprised by something. Could be good, could be bad. That's as you far are as I'm so going to go. I don't you're, know. You're not fun, man. It will be, it'll be surprised by something. Something will happen that will be like, oh, 
Didn't see that coming. Okay, okay. I, th- I thought you weren't going to go anyway. So there will be a surprise. No, no, no. There oh, yeah. Be a big surprise. But it may be like, oh, that's awesome. Or it be like, whoa, how do we not see that? Okay, so my, my answer maybe answers your question of the answer. Mm-hmm. And that's the U.S. economy will be surprisingly robust. Uh, I think going into 2014, there are some tepid hopes that the economy is really starting to recover now. But everybody's still talking about the the Fed taper. Uh, Everybody's concerned about company earnings growth and that sort of thing. So I think strong economic growth in 2014 will catch everybody by surprise. Doesn't necessarily mean strong stock gains. I didn't say strong stock gains. I said surprisingly robust. All right. We have your S&P prediction for the end of the year. We'll we'll hold you to that. 2023. All right. All right. Let's finish off in the Twitter sphere. David, what is the first tweet? All right. First tweet is from Michael Soares. If you trade based on analyst recommendations, you will always be chasing the moves. Do you look at any analyst recommendations? Any tickers, Goldman Sachs and Annaly there and a couple others. But this reminded me of when Goldman Sachs downgraded Annaly at the beginning of December and people were wondering, well, if Goldman Sachs is downgrading it, should anybody own it? And I think we said, do your own homework, figure out what you think it's worth and don't necessarily pay attention to what Goldman's saying. Never. Never. I don't, I don't, I don't look at it. Because I, 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 I have my own analysis, and um, the guys at Goldman certainly are very, very smart, but my analysis may not always jive with that. To me, you've got to ask what their time frame is. They may be looking six months out. Actually, that's a better answer. Because um, yeah. with, with Annalie, yeah, I agree. The six, next six months probably don't look great, but if you're wanting to hold a business for five years, it's a different story. Yeah. Typically, they're talking about a year at mm-hmm. the most. Which is fine. That's their job. I mean, they cater to clients who are looking six months out and a year out, so good for them. Second tweet. We've got Shane Parrish over at Farnham Street. Risk is what's left over after we think we've thought of everything. And that's from at Behavior Gap, who is uh, Carl Richards. Really wise guy over there, Carl Richards. Matt, what are we missing? We think we've thought of everything. I'm sure we're missing something, so. Yeah, well, Well, it's it's, it's like you said in, in the fool in the blank segment. The market will be surprised by something. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, like, I like coming up with, it, with an answer, surprisingly robust economic growth, but that probably won't be the answer. Probably. That probably won't be the surprise. There will be something, something else that comes out of the blue. You're probably wrong. All right, finish this off. <laughs> I, I am probably wrong. All right, final tweet. You're right. From no other than the llama himself, the Dalai Lama. <laughs> the <He's> llama? <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to refer to him as the llama. It's from Caddyshack. I'm allowed to. <laughs> uh, he says, if you dedicate yourself to helping others, you will be happier Matt, when are you going to dedicate yourself to helping me? You'll be happier. <laughs> you know what? I read that as the first time. I read that as uh, the more you dedicate yourself to others, you will be a rapper. Oh. I just looked at it really good. quickly. There you go. If you dedicate you yourself to others, you will be a rapper. So are you dedicating yourself to anything? Only if I get to become a rapper. All right. That's, that's fair. That's probably what the economy is going to be surprised by in 2014. And I'll join Outcast and go to Coachella. Right. Give me a ticket. I, I, okay. I'll, see I'll do there. that. When I dedicate to myself to others and become a rapper and then join Outcast and go to Coachella, I will get you a ticket. That's the surprise. Guaranteed. Cool. Thank you. All right. Um, let's, let's, have, uh, let's have the WTMIers tweet us or go to our Facebook page. Our, our, our Twitter is at TMF Financials. Our Facebook page is Motley Fool Financials. And let us know if any, if any band could get back together. Who would it be? Or, or who's your super band? Like yeah, my uh, better. yeah, super band. Who's your super band? Again, that's at TMF Financials and Motley Fool Financials on Facebook. That's our show to, for today. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. 
People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.